Chaps, I call this meeting of the Discord and Rhyme Preservation Society to order. What shall we preserve this week? Marmite! Trickle tot! Black Adder goes forth! The 1969 album Arthur by the Kinks. The, the Kinks! It's decided then. Let us drink from this cask of warm stout, feast on jellied eels, and sing in Arthur's honor. Uh, yes, 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 very good. Oh, very good. It's a fair cop. <clears throat> Arthur, the world's gone and passed you by. Don't you know it? Don't you know it? You can cry, cry all night, but it won't make it right. Don't you know it? Don't you know it? Don't you know it? Don't you know it? Arthur, once in your life you find her. Don't you know it? Don't you know it? Don't you know it? Don't you know it? Arthur, next thing you know, you're closing down the town. Don't you know it? Don't you know it? Don't you know it? Ben, I don't think those are the. When you get caught between the moon and New York City. The best that you can do. The best that you can do is fall in love with the kinks. This is Discord and Rhyme. Carry on, old chums. <laughs> Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums, song by song. You can subscribe to us on Apple Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and generally where podcasts are found. I'm John McFerrin. I'm Ben Marlin. I'm Lord Rich Bennell. <laughs> and I'm Mike DeFabio. We have three new Patreon donors, Justin, John, no relation, <laughs> and Jeremy, who are all jolly good fellows, which nobody can deny. <laughs> which nobody can deny. <laughs> which nobody can deny. If you like what you hear and feel like throwing a few shillings in the tip jar, you can visit patreon.com slash discordpod. And now all of our British listeners have unsubscribed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we will not be getting many pounds via Patreon. Finally, if you have any thoughts or feedback about the show, or just want to say hi, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Discord Pod, and you can email us at discordpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our host this week is Ben. What are you taking us through today, Ben? John, I'm taking us through the album Arthur or the Decline and Fall of the British Empire by The Kinks, an album from 1969. The Kinks? <laughs> that whole sentence is wonderful. <laughs> so, Ben, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into The Kinks? I don't have much of a personal history with the kinks. Like everyone else, I was familiar with a few big songs from oldies radio like You Really Got Me and Tired of Waiting For You, which are awesome. Somehow I found the album Arthur back in college. Most likely I'd read a good review of it on some website and then found it somewhere in a Gainesville, Florida used CD store. However I found it, I loved it right away and I still love it today. I don't know a ton of other Kinks music, so I'll be grateful for any context you all can provide about them as artists and how that reflects in this album. 
So as for me, uh, I bought this album and the Village Green Preservation Society in the summer of 2001, uh, before my senior year of college, from a now-defunct store called Crow's Nest Music in Crest Hill, Illinois. I had previously been aware of You Really Got Me All Day and All of the Night and Lola, as one tends to be, but if I had ever heard any of their other songs before this, I hadn't known it. Predictably, I instantly loved these two albums, and the band went on my list of artists to review for my site, which I did in 2007. Over the years, I realized that I am more a fan of their peak era than a fan of the band per se. Outside of the range of 1966 to 1972, I love quite a few of their songs, but my attitude towards their albums is much more muted, even if I like some of them. Still, they're a band that I return to often. And this is the full album of theirs that I find myself in the mood for the most. So, Rich, what about you? Well, if I'm being absolutely honest and predictable, my introduction to the Kinks was Weird Al's Yoda. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I also checked the Kink Chronicles 2-disc Best Of out from the library, and I enjoyed it, but I didn't really, it didn't really make me yearn for more at the time. But I eventually really got into them later on after getting into the jam. <laughs> subject of our 27th episode which ben hosted yes uh, and they they did an excellent hypercharged cover of the song david watts on their all mod cons album I am a doll Otherwise, I like the Kinks, but I've never really sat down and appreciated one of their albums until now, to be honest. I think when I first got into the band in high school and early college, I kind of overdid it with their 70s and 80s albums, which are very, very easy to find in used bins. And I very quickly learned why. (laughs) But I love Arthur. It's such a good album, and I'm really excited to talk about it. That is fantastic. Mike, what about you? I got into the Kinks uh, way too late. Uh, I mean, not that late, but I mean, I was, I got into the Beatles super young. I was into the Rolling Stones. I was into the Who. The Kinks, somehow, I, they passed me by. I mean, I knew, you know, like everybody else, I knew uh, Lola and uh, Ape Man from being played on the radio. I knew uh, All Day and All the Night from a Jolly Ranchers commercial. <laughs> <laughs> I acquired their greatest hits album at, at some point, which was, a, apart from, you know, all day and all the night, and you really got me, and a few others. It was pretty pretty standard uh, British invasion stuff that I didn't get super excited about. So for a long time, I was just sort of like, yeah, that's what the kinks sound like. Um, nope. <laughs> no, not at all. And the more I sort of voraciously read about music, the more I figured out that people really like the kinks. And this is a band I need to to actually like get into seriously. So uh, the first Kinks album I listened to in earnest was uh, the compilation Rich mentioned, the uh, the Kink Chronicles, which I also checked oh, out. So from the, good. Which I also checked out from the library, and it's a really cool compilation. I'm not sure if it's still in print, but it's not. Yeah, but it's it's worth seeking out uh, because it's not just a collection of songs just thrown together arbitrarily. It's it was originally a two record set, and. Each side of the compilation, the songs are grouped together by theme. So you have 
a side of songs about places, a side of social commentary songs and things like that. It really gets you acquainted with like the personality of the kinks and the sort of songs that they wrote and you know, what they wrote about, what their sort of world was. And that was that's it was a really neat gateway into the band. And it's it's got uh, two of the, the best songs on this album, which was how I got to know those. All right, Ben. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of the Kinks and how we ended up with this album? Dirty old river, must you keep rolling, flowing into the night. People so busy, make me feel dizzy, taxi light shines so bright. members of the kinks were two members of the davis family and it always reads like it should be davies but am i correct that it's davis yes all right as much as possible let's just say ray and dave when we can (laughs) i think john suggested that and i like it okay of suburban london singer songwriter and rhythm guitarist ray davis and lead guitarist dave davis They began playing together in 1962, though they presumably began despising each other many years before that. After cycling through a few band lineups, they hit it huge in 1964 with the scorching garage rocker, You Really Got Me. Never heard it. <laughs> then they hit it big again with the follow-up to You Really Got Me. It's the same old song. I mean, all day <laughs> and all of the night. Girl, I want to be with you all of the time. All day and all of the night. All day and all of the night. Those hits pigeonholed the kinks as hard rockers, which they could be. But as they made their way through the 60s, they became much better at singing ballads and clever melodic rock songs like A Well-Respected Man and Autumn Almanac and Days. Thank you for the names. Those endless days are sacred days you gave me. I'm thinking of the days. I won't forget a single day, believe me. At his best, main songwriter Ray Davis was in the same class as Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, and Brian Wilson, even if I don't think he reached that level as often as people give him credit for. He was certainly a better lyricist than any of them, except for maybe Lennon. 
The best songs by Ray Davis work as both forest and trees, making an incisive point, but also existing as a series of evocative details. Ray was also an old crank way before his time, forever waxing about how the past, even a past he never lived through, is better than the present, and I always liked that about him. As the 60s wound down, the Kinks recorded a number of classic albums, including Face to Face, Something Else, and The Kinks Are the Village Green Preservation Society. In 1969, Ray, working with writer Julian Mitchell, conceived of an album and a television special called Arthur, or The Decline and Fall of the British Empire. Arthur was going to be about a London carpet layer named Arthur Morgan, following him from his boyhood at the tail end of the Victorian era through the eventual boredom and obsolescence of old age in the 1960s. Arthur was designed to be an everyman, someone who observed all the major events of the day, like World War I, World War II, and Great Depression I, but who kept his head down and led a seemingly small life throughout it all, quietly smoking his pipe and reading Carpet Monthly magazine while bombs fell around him. Ray partially based the character on his brother-in-law, Arthur Anning, which wasn't the nicest thing since the character of Arthur is depicted as dull down to his atoms. Atoms that if you split them, both halves would just fall down and enjoy a nice little snooze. Eventually, the TV special fell through and was never produced. Or maybe it was delayed for 12 years while the character of Arthur was retooled as a lovable sex-crazed drunk somewhere between the moon and New York City. BBC (laughs) records on the matter are spotty. But the album about Arthur was recorded and released by the Kinks in 1969. What resulted, in my opinion, was the Kinks' shining moment a collection of catchy, elaborately produced rock songs that also made you think. And boy, what they made you think about. For all the weird LSD-inspired crap that got recorded in the 60s, nobody else was writing an epic song cycle about a man's life in Imperial Britain. Pete Townsend was esoteric, but he wasn't writing songs about isolationism prior to World War II. John Lennon and Paul McCartney were brilliant, but they weren't discussing the pros and cons of the British Empire during the 19th century. And while the Royal Guardsmen pioneered the rock and roll song about World War I, their take was slightly less mature than the ones by Ray Davis that we'll hear shortly. To be fair, the Zombies also covered World War I in their song Butcher's Tale, Western Front 1914, from their amazing album The Zombies vs. the Red Baron, uh, actually <laughs> Odyssey and Oracle. But it's not one of the stronger tracks on that album, whereas the no. Kinks songs about World War I are some of their best. We'll go track by track in a moment, so I'll just say here that Arthur has been one of my favorite albums for the last 20 years. It's colorful and interestingly arranged with horn charts and fun guitar commentary from Dave. Many of the songs are multi-part suites, but the transitions are never jarring. The band gets them all to make sense. It's a joy to listen to, even when it's a downer. And while there are a few songs that aren't at the level of the others, they never drag. It's not perfect, and it does make me wish that the Kinks had pulled this off more often, but the album is ambitious in the best way, musically and lyrically. 
Yeah, and one other interesting thing about the Kinks is like they were banned from touring in the United States. And that was part of like why Ray Davis like turned inwards and made such like exquisitely British albums like Village <laughs> Green Preservation Society and this. But yeah, like apparently it was like their rowdy touring behavior, um, quote unquote. But I would have assumed they had a song that, you know, slyly critiqued American foreign policy or something. But OK, I believe that they were rowdy. I had heard their ban had something to do with them not wanting to sign some kind of contract. Yeah, I think a lot of it boiled down to politics. Yeah. Get Luca Brazzi in there. He sleeps with the fishes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll move on to the album now. Let's go to track one. This is called Victoria. Who? such an original song there's no other rock and roll song that sounds like it it's not hard rock by any means there's no huge loud riffs but it rocks hard there's no screaming it's mostly acoustic but it slams it drives it carries you along ray does slip into a weird muppet voice for part of it <laughs> the appeal of which i've never understood i file it along with the stevie wonder voice that i call his fat albert voice <laughs> It doesn't ruin the song, but it's also not that appealing. Um, and that's some subtle cross-promotion between episodes I've hosted. If Lou Reed or Paul Weller had done anything like this, I'd be mentioning it right now. I like the idea of a Muppet Victoria. <laughs> What's the song about? Nominally, it's about Queen Victoria, who was on the British throne from 1837 to 1901. Major historical figure. Look her up for sure. But it's even more about nostalgia, about a man longing for the past, for a different time that, at least from a safe distance, seems simpler and more noble, more black and white in the best way. Arthur is longing for the British Empire. At its height, the British Empire covered nearly a quarter of the world's land and a quarter of its people. Famously, the sun never set on it, meaning that at any moment somewhere in the world, the sun was shining on a piece of land under British rule, though rarely Britain itself, apparently. <laughs> that was a major point of pride in Britain, especially for the upper classes, but it meant something to the working class as well. There were respectable jobs to be found as middle management in some far-off colony, and everyone liked to take pride in the home team's accomplishments, especially because Britain's Olympic basketball team was notoriously second-rate back then. <laughs> as for the 24% of the world that was under British rule, they weren't fans of the empire, and understandably so. See the American Revolution, the Canadian Super Revolution, or the Solomon Islands Conflagration, which left most of London in smoldering ruin before the Solomons gained their independence in 1978. Or just ask any <laughs> Irish person. That's not to say that everywhere the British touched ended up like the Belgian Congo. They sometimes meant well, but they still shouldn't have been wherever they were. 
As a rule, people lead healthier, more fulfilled lives when a bunch of strangers don't show up and start telling them what to do. Back to the song. It's an amazing, explosive, sunny, joyful opener. The best advertisement I can think of for waiting around to see what else the band has to say. This is a great opener. (laughs) And even if musically it's not an overture per se, it lays the foundation very effectively for what I see as the album's twofold concept. Mm -hmm. The first side of the album will present Arthur as a young man. And, as Ben said, it will also present the British Empire of Arthur's youth. When it was still seemingly in its prime and offered clear opportunities for its average citizens. As described in this song and in the next two, the best thing a young man could do with his life was to fight for queen and country, in defense of an empire where the sun never sets. It also introduces a curious approach to sinning from Ray, which Ben also mentioned, which based on how it's deployed through the album, I've come to hear as the voice of unthinking patriotism, militarism, and jingoism. Mm. It's a musical. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now, musically, there's a lot to recommend here in this song, but I'm really fascinated, especially by the charmingly out-of-practice fast guitar solo. Especially since I tend to hear it as day finally breaking free after a few years of stylistic captivity. <laughs> uh, Mike, what do you think? Well, I kind of, this is a song I, I kind of came at backwards because the very first version of the song I ever heard was the cover by The Fall. It was bad, called up You know, I'm still really not sure how fall songs happen. Yeah. A lot of times uh, somebody will just be playing a song in the studio and then Marky Smith will hear it and be like, we should do that. (laughs) Marky Smith and a riff love each other very, very much. I like the Falls Victoria cover because it sounds like they chose the song as a way to sort of trick Marky Smith into hitting notes, but it doesn't work at all. <laughs> no, and he, he doesn't even he doesn't bother to, to get the words right or in the right order. Uh, but it's still even though it's it sounds like it's on the verge of falling apart. It's still by fall standards. It's super polished. So when I finally heard the Kinks version, the, the main thing I had to, to get over was the fact that Ray Davis sings it like that. John's explanation makes a lot of sense, but at the time, I was, what, why is he using that voice? <laughs> it's a terrific song. Uh, I, I especially love the way, I mean, it starts out, it kind of simmers, and then they get more and more into it as the song progresses, till by the end, somebody, I think Dave Davis, I think is just screaming his head off in the background, because they're <laughs> having so much fun. They're just so into the song by the time it's over, and like Ben mentioned, it's not it's not like a particularly, you know, raucous rock song, but they're they're rocking so hard at the same time. Well, and and compared to what they'd done the last three albums, this right. is basically Metallica. Right. <laughs> yeah. Village Green Preservation <laughs> Society is so gentle. And for them to bust out with a song like this, it's you're kind of like, all right, yeah, we're getting some rock and roll. 
Well, <laughs> I even think of like if you want to go deeper, like something from something else, like a song like "End of the Season." Mm. Like that's where they had ended up. Just these very very slow keyboard heavy, melancholy, poppy as hell uh, songs. But there would be guitar occasionally, but it was just decoration. Like this is an actual rock song yeah. from a band where I wasn't sure if they were ever going to do rock songs again. Yeah, Dave Dave Davis is it's almost pure id. And <laughs> yes. I I always feel like he wishes that instead of being one of the Kinks brothers, he had been born one of the young brothers. <laughs> uh, and and you know, been up there with Angus and Malcolm and you know, he's a great sport doing all those soft songs, but yeah, he was really constrained during all of that. Rich well, I like what John said about how it's not like so much an overture for the album, but it's kind of a like a thematic introduction for the beginning of Arthur's life, because like toward the end of Victoria's life, she was very well liked and in like full on like Diamond Jubilee legacy mode. She was seen as like a symbol of empire and very just beloved. And this puts you in the mindset of someone like Arthur who grew up in the shadow of her reign. Just thinking of right now, it's honestly hard not to think about how Elizabeth II is being canonized herself with, a, you know, an Oscar winning movie uh, and a TV series that also wins a bunch of awards just because it exists. <laughs> As for Victoria itself, I, I mean, well, the lyrics are hilarious because all the lyrics on this album are pretty funny, but I especially like the when he goes over like the British Empire and says, you know, Canada to India, Australia to Cornwall, Singapore to Hong Kong like Cornwall is the only really locally specific place in that list the other the other ones are just concepts to him which mm, I think is pretty yeah. funny yeah. yeah but great opener for the album it's Victoria uh, I've loved this one yeah. since I heard it on the King Chronicles all right let's move on so the track two is called yes sir no sir yes sir no sir where do I go what do I do, sir? What do I say? Yes, sir, no, sir. Where do I go, sir? What do I do, sir? How do I behave? Yes, sir, no, sir. Permission to speak, sir. Permission to breathe, sir. What do I say? How do I behave? Listen to that drumming in the back. I never noticed it before, but yeah. it's so good. So, Yes Sir, No Sir takes us to the outbreak of World War I in 1914. It's a condemnation of the deadening authoritarian mindset of the British military, mostly sung from the perspective of a young grunt in the British Army. Our hero starts off with regular yes sirs and regular no sirs like any other soldier, but by the end of the song, and presumably by the end of some time at the front, He's asking for permission to die because the military life is affecting his brain. Those segments are interspersed with the words of his officers, all heartlessness and efficiency. Quote, so you think that you've got ambition. Stop your dreaming and your idle wishing. And then give the scum a gun and make that bugger fight and be sure to have deserters shot on sight. If he dies, we'll send a medal to his wife. Give the scum a gun and make the bugger fight And be sure to have deserters shot on sight If he dies, we'll send a medal to his wife <laughs> Ouch. That's the harshest sentiment. It sounds unrealistic, like the officer is sneering and twirling his handlebar mustache, 
But during the First World War, the British Army executed 306 of its own men for desertion or alleged cowardice. Almost nobody at the time had any idea of the effect that shell shock or PTSD, as we call it now, was having on the minds of the men in the trenches. Nowadays, we look back on those executions as shocking, really an atrocity. But in 1914, there wasn't much sympathy for soldiers like the one in the song whose brain was being adversely affected by the war. There's also a devastating broadside against the conformity that the military drilled into its young recruits. Ray sings as one of the officers, saying, Doesn't matter who you are, you're there, and there you are. Everything is in its place, authority must be maintained, and then we know exactly where we are. It all sounds depressing, and heck yes it is. But because it's still Ray Davis and the kinks near their peak, we've got a catchy beat and an original chord progression, fun horn charts, and Dave's clever lead guitar grace notes. He's really trying to burst out from from that kind of sleep he's been going through for a couple years. And Mick Avery pounds his snare drum throughout, bringing some structure to what's really a multi-part suite. How does this all relate to Arthur? Well, the liner notes tell us that Arthur's brother Eddie died in World War I, presumably while Arthur was at home nursing his bone spurs. That was mighty big of Eddie, dying in the trenches so Ray Davis could shoehorn in a few songs about World War I. Thanks, Eddie. We owe you one. <laughs> yeah, it turns out that serving queen and country kind of sucks. <laughs> uh, this isn't one of my very favorites on the album, but I like how it takes a bunch of ideas that by themselves would seem regal and martial, and combines and delivers them in a way that sounds like a mocking piss take, hmm. not least because of the return of the goofy jingoism voice. Uh, musically, the horns are the most easily observable detail, but as Ben mentioned, Dave is doing some very unusual things with his guitars. And for me, sometimes it's fun just to focus on those. Uh, Rich, how about you? Well, my favorite part is the yeah the part with the uh, the officers, the authorities, because because to me they're sort of this sadistic Greek chorus who show up, like very explicitly spelling out the themes of the song, and then just you know sending Arthur's brother off to die, uh, and then like right after they get this big brassy triumphant arrangement that builds behind them. Yeah, I've always liked this one a lot. Especially, you know, if you're young and spoiled and your parents pay for everything, then, then having to do anything that you don't want to do is exactly like being in the trenches in World War One. <laughs> Permission to speak, sir? What do I say? I, I like this one a lot because it's like it, the, the way that it's this little mini suite. It reminds me a lot of this, this uh, something Paul McCartney might write, like uh, Uncle Albert yeah. or something like that. Uh, Except yeah. way more bitter. We're so sorry. <laughs> Paul McCartney would never write something so so mean. And it's, I think my favorite part of the callous uh, authoritarian section in the middle is just that cruel laughter after they say, if he dies, we'll send a medal to his wife. <laughs> it's just this extra touch of meanness that they throw in there. And I like how Ray, he, he's doing, the, uh, he's doing the, the dumb jingoism voice, but he kind of starts to break out of it a little. And I think part of that is just because he's, He's pushing his voice into, you know, it's it, the higher part of its range. But it's I think there's there's like a psychological effect there, too. Mm -hmm. There's like a need to, like, break out of this rigid conformity that he's found himself in. Um, might be reading a little too much into that, but <laughs> it's it's there. Yeah, that's what this album's for. Yeah. <laughs> for me, I'm just now stuck on the idea of this as sort of like the the exact opposite of 
in tone of something like Little Lamb Dragonfly, mm. but like yeah. taking like the happiest multi-part song imaginable and make it into the to, to the bitterest multi-part song imaginable. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, if we're done with this cheery song, let's move on to a, a very cheery song. Oh, wait. <laughs> track three is called Some Mother Son. Yeah, sorry. Track three was originally Shiny Happy People. <laughs> like to bring the jokes but i got nothing for this one uh some mother's son is about the millions of kids like arthur's brother eddie who went off to fight and die in the trenches between 1914 and 1918 britain alone lost 744,000 men a decent chunk of an entire generation the empathy in ray davis's lyrics is overwhelming here he places us on the battlefield and even into the head of one of the soldiers and one of the couplets goes, One soldier glances up to see the sun and dreams of games he played when he was young. And then his friend calls out his name. It stops his dreams, and as he turns his head, a second later, he is dead. Not much of a friend, but even for those of us who have never gone to war, who can't relate to that? Ray makes crushingly clear that even in the worst setting imaginable, these were people, really kids, or only barely removed from that part of their lives, and that's how we relate to them, even if we've never come close to experiencing most of what they've gone through. It's just one guy, but we like him, and we get him, and then we lose him, all in one verse, and it's more shattering than an entire war movie's worth of grisly deaths. It's all magnified by an exquisite, somber melody driven by a harpsichord, everything played and sung slowly for maximum emotional benefit, the bridge of the song is even more wrenching, ending with the image of a world that keeps turning even though all the children have gone away. That just leaves me with nothing. Some mother's son, it just kills me. It forces me to picture millions of mother's sons who never got to enjoy college and start a career in a peaceful world, but who instead died in the trenches for reasons that are hard to remember now and that were blurry even at the time. It makes me sad for everyone who lost so much and it instills in me a deep sense of there but for the grace of God go I, that I've been lucky, and that for a few altered circumstances, it all could have been different. That's heavy, and I usually don't like to lead with heavy, but that's also why I don't pull out some mother's son too often, because it beats me up every time I hear it. That poor dog. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that serving queen and country sometimes leads to people dying. Yeah. And they're not just part of a larger statistic. No mother who cleans her son's diaper or greets him after school plans on him growing up to die in war. Mm. And no child plans to die in such a way themselves. This is one of the absolute greatest kink songs ever, as far as I'm concerned, both musically and lyrically. 
And the closing line, some mother's memory remains, is devastating every time I hear it. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't have much to add to what you guys have said, uh, but uh, except as you may have heard, Ray is a very clever writer. And I kind of I like the parallel between these two parts of the song. Like first there's but all dead soldiers look the same while all the parents stand and wait. And then later on, he says, but in his mother's eyes, he looks the same as on the day he went away. Like it strikes a really eerie parallel between how a soldier's mother and the people who sent him off to die, like view the same person. Uh, I just like the little like poetic structure there. I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mike? I'd like to echo something that uh, Ben said uh, back on the Jam episode about uh, their song, Little Boy Soldiers. Quote. Oh, that song. Ah! (laughs) Good summary. This... Ah, uh, this is a much harder song to listen to than you expect from a band like The Kinks, or, or from an album from 1969. I mean, it just it just destroys you. It's just so emotionally direct. Like you had you had anti-war songs, but you didn't have they they didn't go straight for your emotions like this. Just conveying the emotions of what are essentially these frightened children who have to kill each other in this yeah. war. Yeah. And the, the the line that always destroys me is someone is trying to be so brave. Yeah. That that always just just wrecks me. It's an incredible song, really. Um and it's it always hits me harder than I think it's going to when I hear it. And it's kind of in that dainty like baroque pop walk away Renee tradition except so much more yeah. devastating than that. Yeah. And it's it's the instrumentation, you know, it's it's technically it's a ballad, but it's it's got a lot of power. And, and not not in a power ballad way, but it's like there's real like oomph to the instrumentation whenever the drums kind of flare up for a moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a song that puts a lot of thought into the little details. Yeah, it absolutely does. You're right, I, Michael. I like what you're saying that it's it seems like it would be a, a quiet, almost even toothless song musically, but it's somehow got power even with just only only a few quiet ingredients. Yeah. All right, well, if we're done here, let's move on to a song that at least seems a little cheerier. Hmm. <laughs> kind of, sort of, isn't. Spoiler. The next song is called Drivin'. Ah, a minor key. <laughs> This is one of the less distinct songs on the album. I think it was originally one of Ray's sunny, happy songs like A Swing in Summer or Tiptoeing by the Seaside, and he decided to wedge it into the plot of Arthur. It's a little slight, but it's still perfectly likable. The chorus is catchy, and the harmonies do sell the whole thing. Drive-In is a peppy song about isolationism and a pending world war. In the 1930s, the world was still recovering from World War I. All that death and destruction could only be redeemed by the widespread feeling that it had been the war to end all wars, that at least nobody would ever make the same mistakes again, because nobody would ever want to go through something like that again. Because of that, even as Germany rearmed itself and began taking teensy pieces of land that it didn't have the right to take, 
And even as smaller conflicts like the Spanish Civil War flared around the world, most of Britain looked the other way. In other words, they went driving. They had picnics and they relaxed because everything was fine. And this wasn't just the regular people who were excited to eat whatever was in their picnic basket. The politicians and upper classes were driving too, or at least being driven by their chauffeurs. At every level of government, there was the belief that Hitler was a chap who could be worked with. Shame about the mustache, really, but we can negotiate with the fellow. And that the world would remain peaceful, because obviously nobody was going to do all that again. Eventually, Britain gaily and cheerfully drove right up to the edge of a bomb crater. And only then did they realize that they couldn't drive away from everything. More on that to come. Well, in case you think that this album's themes aren't relevant today, the song is like how I felt doing anything fun for like a decade now. Like, <laughs> like, do, 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 yeah. do. I'm binge watching <laughs> Cheers and then Frasier and then The Good Wife. Like, ugh. Uh, but musically, I love this song. Like, I love the little like triplets that Dave adds to the verses starting about a minute and a half in because it sounds like sort of like the putt putt of a motor. Um, and it feels like kind of like a touch that Dave Gregory from XTC would add. And I like anything that yeah. reminds me of XTC. That's a great comparison. Mike, what about you? This is not a song I have a whole lot to say about. Uh, I do like it. I think my favorite element of it is the the line about how they've got plenty of beer. Just because, yeah, we're, we're just going to drink and drive because it's the old days and you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> the good old days. Yeah. As for me, uh, my thoughts are as follows. Arthur's time to worry about dying in combat has passed. And now he gets to figure out what he wants to do with the rest of his life while other people get to spend their time killing each other. Sure, driving into the country, perhaps to a village green somewhere <laughs> far away, <laughs> eh, eh, is just momentary escapism. And sure, the world is going to catch up with you at some point. But as the song says, that seems like an eternity away. This is clearly a transitional song. It's not meant to be one of the highlights, but it's very fun. And it has very cute harmonies. I would never, ever skip over it. I love it. It's a, This is one of the highlights for me. One of the absolute highlights of the album, honestly. Interesting. I'm glad you like. And I love the dark parts that keep like creeping into the song. Like it's like Arthur is driving, but then he keeps like being reminded of how depressed he is and how depressing the world is. But then he's like, oh, whatever. Do, 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 do. <laughs> That's interesting. No, I, I like that take. I mean, this song is like the first one written for the album. It wasn't intended for Arthur, but I think it like fits in perfectly thematically. It's one of my favorites. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. He's just excited to end up on the village green, lay out his blanket and dive into his tripe pie or whatever he brought along <laughs> with him. I never forget my tripe pie. <laughs> All right. Got nothing else to say about driving. Let's move on to the next track. This is called Brainwashed. I haven't said anything about the bassist, but I guess he is showing up here. It's John Dalton, I believe. He's fine. <laughs> That's your back of the album pull quote for him. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Get down. 
Brainwashed is more energy than melody. I'm sort of in a slower segment of the album for me, and it'll pick up from here. Uh, it's a crunchy riff rocker with a multi-part structure. It's got great dynamics, and it'll energize you while it's on, and then you'll probably forget how it went. The song isn't so much about Arthur as it is about everyone like Arthur. It's a diatribe against the middle classes who go along and don't question things, who are just puppets for the aristocrats and bureaucrats who really run things. These fools go to work and come home like mindless puppets. They go to church like zombies. They love their families like a bunch of idiots. <laughs> and they live more comfortably than their parents did because they're jerks. They don't think about whether there might be more to life than all that, like taking LSD or singing Bob Dylan songs. Man, this shit's condescending. I'm brainwashed. <laughs> You're brainwashed. We're all brainwashed except for Ray Davis, who's 24 and hasn't showered in days and can somehow see the matrix that the rest of us are blind to. Sounds right. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that was the plot of Preservation 3. <laughs> <laughs> As you may have gleaned, I take issue with the politics of this song. Yes, I believed some of this stuff when I was young and unwashed. And yes, I miss some of the idealism I had back then. But the condescension, the blanket judgment, the assumption that in your 20s you've reached the peak of intelligence and understanding, and that from there it's just a slide into brainwashed glop. I grew up and away from that, and hopefully Ray Davis did too. It isn't giving up or giving in or selling out to want a comfortable, respectable life in which you contribute to society and form a network of loving, mutually supportive relationships. That's a good life. Is it the best life one can lead? I don't know. There's always room for improvement, but it's a good life. It's something to strive for. Yes, you should question the world around you and think about how it could be better and work towards that better world. Yes, there are people who unfairly profit from the status quo to everyone's detriment. And there's a lot out there to fix, but I'm not brainwashed. You're not brainwashed. None of us are puppets being dangled by some puppet master. Check your shoulders and arms. There's nothing there. Maybe hair as you get older, but nothing else. <laughs> See, I've I've always liked this song a lot, and partly because it's just a, a great rousing piece of rock and roll. But also, I think it works on two levels. I think you can read it one way as just a, a straightforward, angry diatribe that means exactly what it says. But I think it also works as a really effective parody of uh, the kind of uh, self-righteousness you get into when you're young and you, you think you've figured everything out and you're the only smart person in the world and look at all these sheeple. I'm not like them. <laughs> I know how to think. Either way, you can enjoy it. Um, I don't think, I mean, Ray was a young guy when he wrote this. Yeah, he, that's he what I was been, thinking. Like he, cause he was actually 24 then. Was he that self-aware? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It could go either way, but I think, yeah. it, I think it, uh, however he meant it, I mean, it's written from the perspective of a character also. Mm -hmm. So however he meant it, I think it can be interpreted either way, which I think makes it great. Well, I'm not sure if it's necessarily from the perspective of a particular character, like because uh, it, it, the song is so broad. It's it's like just standard yeah. anti-conformist stuff, not really Ray at his most witty. Like uh, the way I see it, I bet in the TV special that got scrapped, it would have been part of a montage or something. Hmm. Uh, but I agree, the song rocks. I mean, I can just not listen to the lyrics, and as a brainwashed conformist, that's all I need, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, I mean, lyrically, this song is basically a word from the narrator. <laughs> 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 
but I, I can accept it on that level. Um, the message of the song is that for me is that all is not well, neither with Arthur nor with Britain as a whole. And I don't really focus on the lyrics much more than that. What I focus on primarily is aspects of the music, like Dave's brutally heavy guitar sound in the middle that makes sure to finish the job of driving home the point. Now, my very favorite part of the song is the way that Ray's vocal melody weaves around the riffage and the trumpets. But it's that guitar sound, the rage of somebody who hasn't been able to record a guitar sound played in anger in years. <laughs> and which clearly foreshadows Clash City Rockers from nearly a decade oh, later. Oh, it does! So yeah, I, I, I get Ben's point, and Ray would never really grow out of this obsession with, ah, middle class. I mean, <laughs> uh, in the mid-80s, he wrote a song, which is basically him talking about, I don't want to work in a factory, but I'm in the music industry. It's just like a factory. <laughs> so kind of like the song, but it's he, he's stuck on a certain mindset, and you just have to kind of accept that with the kinks. It's fair. Yeah. And Mike, I really like the interpretation that that it could be a parody. I I don't know if I agree, but I also didn't consider that before. And I I like kind of having that out for Ray, like not really knowing for sure. Yeah, I suspect that Ray, to a certain extent, is approaching this seriously, and Dave is trying to turn it into a parody. That's mm. an interesting idea. Huh. Like I, I think it's like whatever. That like, can I make this? Can I make the song angry? Please, can I make it angry? <laughs> cool, I can make it angry. Yeah, he's clearly jumping at the opportunity to play an angry song. Yes. <laughs> All right. If we're done here, uh, let's go on a trip. Should it be a close trip? No, let's go to Australia. <laughs> All right, Midnight Oil. It's thin, but it's so bouncy. (laughs) So the liner notes to Arthur have some extra information about Arthur and his family. In those notes, we learn that Arthur's son, Derek, took his wife, Liz, and his children, Terry and Marilyn, and moved to Australia. They were part of a new wave of Britons who went to Australia to start a new life willingly, rather than chained to a convict ship as part of a seven-year exile. Australia, not just for brigands and ne'er-do-wells anymore, though they're certainly welcome to. And there go all of our Australian listeners, too. (laughs) (laughs) We're just going through the whole empire now. (laughs) I'm going to get such a booting. Yeah, but so does the album. (laughs) Even though Arthur himself doesn't go down under, the whole idea of Britons emigrating to Australia gets its own song on the album. The Kinks perform Australia as an advertisement, enticing you, yes, you, to move there as well. Ray sings that Australia features surfing, just like in the USA, and no class distinction or no drug addiction, which seems like a fishy claim about anywhere, but who knows, I've never been down there. 
Ray even sings of spending a sunny Christmas day in Sydney, which just seems unnatural to me, but people can like what they like. Like flying a kite at night. (laughs) (laughs) Australia is a catchy, sunny, likable song. Around the halfway point, it opens up into a jam, one of the few the Kinks ever committed to tape. It's spacey and fun, and while it's not profound, I also never find myself wondering when it's going to end, and I like that Dave gets a chance to show off on lead guitar, or at least let out some of that boundless energy that only he and my four-year-old son seem to have. Historical footnote, thanks to the Immigration Restriction Act and subsequent legislation, emigration to Australia was restricted to the British race from 1901 all the way up to when this album was recorded. So if you want, you can annotate the song. Opportunities are available for all walks of life in Australia if you're white. So if you're young and if you're healthy and white, why not get a boat and come to Australia? To be fair, the white Australia policy was dismantled within a few years of this album coming out, and by all accounts, Australia is an awesome place to live and to go surfing, whatever you look like. It deserves this happy anthem that Ray Davis wrote for it. Except everything there wants to kill you. Yeah. (laughs) There is that. So there are fillerish aspects to this, especially the long guitar-led jam in the second half that I don't think is is the band at its best, even if it's not the band at its worst. But even if it's essentially a goofy mock advertisement for emigration from England to Australia, it's also one of the album's conceptual tent pegs, for better or for worse, and it has to be taken seriously. Dating back to the 16th century and the writings of Richard Hacklett, England had pushed hard for its citizens to emigrate to its various colonies, primarily for the economic double-edged advantage of adding productivity to those colonies and removing its least productive citizens from the mother country, where they were essentially little more than surplus that added less than they consumed. Arthur's life had largely stalled out in England, so why not at least consider a move to Australia? a land that England tried to present in the same light as the Western United States had been presented in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Amanda. Nothing's stopping us now. Well, this song is specifically based on Arthur Anning, who moved to Australia with, uh, with Ray's sister, Rosie, who is the subject of, Rosie, won't you please come home? Oh. From Australia. Uh, but, but but anyway, I think that like, I think it's funny that Ray wrote an entire concept album to diss his brother-in-law. Like apparently Arthur <laughs> Anning didn't mind. I, th- I think he liked it. But to me, that's still like a spite move on par with something from like Curb Your Enthusiasm or something. <laughs> uh, but uh, I don't know. I think that this it's even funnier to me that the song makes you picture Australia as like this tropical paradise with like these Beach Boys backing vocals. And it's like Australia. <laughs> la, 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 la. It feels like kind of a satire of the way like Britain pictures its colonies. Hmm. Yeah. The brother-in-law thing makes me think of uh, Bruce Springsteen tells the story where he asked his he, he asked his dad later in life, you know, do you like any of my songs? Which are your favorite ones? And he goes, I like the ones about me. <laughs> <laughs> 
fair. Mike, what about you? Uh, well, before I had a chance to hear this song, you know, I was pretty young. I, and this album, I don't think was that easy to find. So I, it was a time when I would read a lot of reviews of albums I wanted to hear. So I could at least imagine what they sounded like in my head. And all the reviews I read of this album all said something in them like, you know, the the low point of the album is the <laughs> endless interminable jam at the end of Australia. It would be a perfect album if it weren't for the jam at the end of Australia. And imagine my surprise when it turned out to be great. Ha. Ha. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, Grateful Dead 69 level jamming, but I, it's, I like that they have a chance to stretch out here. I enjoy it. They're, they're not doing anything that amazes me, but it, it grooves along really nicely. And I'm, I don't know Phil's opinion of this song, but I'm going to guess he's a fan. That's fair. As someone who has, has gone on record as, as saying that he just likes hearing a band play. I'm not a fish fan, but I, I fall into that category a little bit. And I like the song part, too. It's catchy. It's funny. I really like uh, the line, everyone walks around with a perpetual smile upon their face, which <laughs> yeah. just, just makes me think of the Capital City song. Yeah. <laughs> it's against the law to frown in <laughs> Capital City. It's like something you would see if, if you, it's like an advertisement you would see if you're going to a Nickelodeon. Yeah. <laughs> like like before the cartoon about like this wonderful place you should go to. It perfectly matches that big happy kangaroo on the back of the album cover. Yes. <laughs> it's like the, the musical yeah. analog of that. All right. We've got nothing else to say about Australia. Let's go to another place. Is it better? Is it worse? <laughs> Let's find out. This track is called Shangri-La. Seven shillings a week Arthur has reached the height of middle-class respectability. He's got his house, his Shangri-La, done up just the way he likes it. He's comfortable. He's got the car he wanted. He has a fireplace. He has a radio and even a TV. Probably black and white, but that's how the world looked back in the 30s. He gets along with his neighbors. When he needs to take a piss, he no longer has to wander out into his backyard on a freezing evening. For this, Ray tears him apart. Arthur's a conformist. Arthur doesn't understand the forces that are controlling his life. Arthur works his boring job and comes home to his boring house. He might have a few at the local pub, but he never expands his mind with drugs. 
Arthur has tickets to Woodstock in August, but only because he wants to see Sha Na Na. Basically, <laughs> Arthur's all sold in out. 30 years. <laughs> it's not just Ray. Musicians in the 60s hated people like Arthur. At best, the Arthurs of the world knowingly bought into a system that kept the rich rich and the poor poor, so long as they could have their own little Shangri-La. At worst, they were actively working to stamp out individuality in favor of meaningless calm and comfort. This is what rock musicians hated. Working hard, wanting a better life for your kids, where you don't hit your head on the smog wafting up and down the streets, and where the local swimming hole isn't just a sewage ditch. Wanting to pee in a toilet inside your house? I covered a lot of this in an earlier song, so I won't get too deep into it here. But again, there's a lack of empathy that's distinct from a lot of the rest of the album. Ray doesn't bring us into Arthur's head and his world so much as judge him from on high with an accusatory finger wagging at him. If he'd chosen to wag that finger next to an electric guitar, it would have sounded like Eddie Van Halen, and that would have been cool. <laughs> Musically, though, Shangri-La is pretty awesome. It's an epic, building from a delicately picked acoustic opening to a huge, ornate chorus with horns blaring and the band roaring behind Ray and Dave's harmonies. The politics bug me, and I've always felt that the melody doesn't quite live up to the hugeness of the arrangement but I still admire the hell out of the effort. If I don't like the point, at least it's trying to make one. And if the music is slightly more interesting than it is melodic, God bless them for making it interesting. More songs should be as ambitious as Shangri-La. Sorry, Ben, but this is my favorite kink song by a considerable <laughs> distance. And, and I have a, a slightly different interpretation of what, what point Ray is trying to make here All right. uh, than you do. So Arthur did everything he was supposed to do. He slogged through the British school system. He got an honest working class job. He lost a brother in defense of the empire. And all the while, he assumed that the end goal was something great and inspiring. Instead, the best he could achieve was his very own Potemkin village. Yeah. A lower middle class existence at best. Disguised as something a little better through debt that allows him to match everybody else's Potemkin villages, but ultimately consumes his life with fear. Hmm. You, know, you mentioned the TV set and the radio, but for me, the key line in there is the fact that he's having to pay seven shillings a week for it. He's having to finance his life. He doesn't even own it. Yes. Yeah. Yes, the passage of time has allowed his life to have some niceties that improve upon where he started out, but the loss of hope, the realization that he's reached his top and he just can't get any higher has left him unable to truly enjoy any of it, instead requiring him to play his part and say his lines while he pretends to be happy and waits for the inevitable end. This is a song about fear, and that's and, and lyrically, that's what, what strikes me most about it. Now, musically, well, where does one begin? Yeah. The dark acoustic main theme is, is as majestic as anything Ray ever wrote. The chant of the title that serves as the chorus is breathtaking, and the combination of these with the bitchin' acoustic theme propelled by Mick Avery's greatest stretch on drums <laughs> is enough for me to make the song's five-minute runtime feel like three. All the houses in the street have got a name Cause all the houses in the street, they look the same Same chimney pop, same little cars, same window panes The neighbors call the same things that you should know They say that life they drink that tea and then they go 
So Rich, what about you? Well, insofar as what the title represents, like uh, the name Shangri-La has become a cliche by now, but it comes from the 1933 novel Lost Horizon by English author James Hilton. And it like describes a place of isolation and solitude with a vaguely Orientalist name. Uh, and it was the very first mass market paperback ever, actually, in 1939. And it was really, really oh. popular. So Arthur probably loved it. Uh, and that's and that's <laughs> yeah. and that's the thing. Like this was his ideal, like his Shangri La. And I I love this song because it's the album's centerpiece, the epic, the most perfectly arranged, exquisitely executed song on all of Arthur. There's not a note out of place, and it's about his fucking house. Like, <laughs> yes. And if you think this album isn't relatable just because it's from 50 years ago and there's an ocean between our countries, just think about how like our entire country is structured around just groups and groups of Shangri-Las. And just yes. think about how these Shangri-Las completely upended the world, the global economy in 2008. And think about how, as of this recording, we're all trapped in our Shangri-Las because we'll get sick if we go outside. Like <laughs> our, our entire world is structured around Shangri-Las. It's not just Arthur. And this album has really really been making me reflect guys yeah it does that that's, i love this song that's great <laughs> mike what about you i my uh interpretation is a lot closer to john's well let me Ooh. let me back up <clears throat> this is like stairway to heaven or bohemian rhapsody for the real heads all right uh, yeah this is like one of the great rock epics that you never hear on the radio because they want to play Lola some more. <laughs> they should play this. Not, not to knock Lola at all or anything, but uh, the whole arrangement and the construction of it is, I mean, everything you guys have said it is, the, the, the way it builds, the way the parts connect. I, I love how it, the when it slams into that middle section, down, 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 and it, it just takes off. And then when it, the main theme comes back with all its grandeur. I mean, the arrangements on this album, but particularly this song, I mean, the horns and the harpsichord, it's so well put together and well thought out. This is probably my favorite Kinks song. And if it's not my favorite Kinks song, it's the one that gets the reaction out of me of, wow, what a song. But in terms of you know what it's what it's about my interpretation of the song is a lot closer to john's i think i i hear a lot of empathy in this song really um mm -hmm. you know it's not uh it's not such a you know screw you you old fart talking about my generation <laughs> it's i mean it perfectly conveys this feeling of having worked your whole life for something and finally getting everything you wanted and then realizing that that's it and it's not going to get any better. This is what your life's going to be. And it's an absolute, it's it's the masterpiece, I think, of Suburban Ennui. <laughs> and, uh, not really, Our I, House by Madness. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I definitely think there's a lot of empathy in the song. It's just that, like, Arthur is, and everyone else is trapped in this, like, system of houses. It's that, uh, Arthur is all of us. Yes. I mean, uh, they, like Parasite won Best Picture this year. That, that it's about a house. Like it, <laughs> everything in Arthur is in Parasite. That, I'm just gonna say it. <laughs> yeah, hot take. This is great, and I'm I'm willing to believe that I I may have been too quick to think that this was a continuation of Brainwashed, and I think I did miss some of the empathy in there because you're right. He 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 at least feels bad for Arthur and and wants yeah. more for him. He at least sympathizes. Um, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just want to me just mention a, a couple things to, to wrap this up before we move on. 
I see this largely as a uh, conceptual prelude to the title track and that it's it's making the the case that Arthur's situation is not entirely his fault. It's largely because he was betrayed by the promises of the empire, just the assumption that the empire was going to just keep lasting, but because it declines and because it's already in a state of decline, um, it wasn't able to live up to give him the promises to, to, to fulfill the promises that were implicitly made to him when he was growing up. And uh, the second thing I just want to, to briefly mention is uh, back in my twenties, I decided uh, at one point to make a, a three CD mix for myself, uh, which was which had the rule of I could only have one song per artist, and Shangri La was my king song. Mm. It's a good choice. Yeah, it 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 fit really well, and it, it was the only it was the only song that I really considered really seriously. That's great, and Rich, I also I loved your political take on it too. That's that's also a perspective I hadn't considered, but it, it makes perfect sense. It's completely apolitical to me, but uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. To me, it's more about the human condition than about politics. Yeah. All right, I think we're done here. So let's move on to the next track. This will be called "Mr. Churchill Says." Who? Well, Mr. Churchill said. Mr. Churchill said. So generations of listeners have speculated regarding who Mr. Churchill is. <laughs> Without any evidence, my best guess is that he's allegorical, like Mr. Jones from Bob Dylan's Ballad of a Thin Man. He's a representation of an entire generation. As for what this Mr. Churchill says... Uh, ben? Oh! Oh! Okay, Rich just informed me that Mr. Churchill is Winston Churchill, two-time Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. He also informed me that I've read several biographies of Winston Churchill, including <laughs> William Manchester's masterful series. So I really should have caught this one. That's a lot I of apologize. information in that whisper. Yeah, <laughs> I'm efficient. Rich is good at that. The lyrics to Mr. Churchill says appropriately, quote, some of the great man's most famous speeches, especially the ones that rallied Britain during the darkest days of World War II, while German bombs were raining down on London and Liverpool. The song talks about that period and explores life on the ground in Britain during such perilous times. As for whether the kinks do much with such fascinating subject matter, eh. Mr. Churchill says is a multi-part suite, and as always, I admire the ambition there. But none of the musical sections are all that interesting to me, except for the brief moment where they ramp up the dynamics as an air raid siren blares over the music. Yeah. That's cool as hell. It's awesome. Even worse, Ray sings the song all goofy and muppety, like it's a joke or a piss take. After the band's harrowing take on World War I just a few songs ago, where it felt like the Hun was actually bursting into your living room through the speakers, this is a letdown. It makes me think of the scene in the film A Hard Day's Night, where the old veteran scowls at the long-haired Beatles and says, 
I fought the war for your sort. I don't know if we're supposed to take his side there, but a song like this makes me think he at least had a point. Yeah, I basically have been on this one. It starts off as a bit of a slog and the jingoism voice is back, uh, which I think, again, is, is pertinent. But yeah, yeah, the song is what it is. But as Ben said, when the sirens go off, the electric guitar passage that emerges matches brainwashed as one of the most impressive hard rock moments in the band's career. And that's about all I have to say about it. <laughs> Mike, you got anything? Yeah, more or less what you said. I mean, it, it it takes a while to get going. I do like the effect of Ray using the the jingoism voice to to quote the Churchill speech. Never in the field of human conflict with so much or <laughs> so few. Uh, a good Ray. <laughs> thank you. You're a really good Ray. Uh, but uh, it it does really get going once the air raid siren kicks in and it turns into a hard rocker. Uh, I really like it from that point on. I especially like uh, that they give Dave so much space to solo. It's not like a big, flashy solo. I didn't really pay attention. I didn't really realize it was there the first few times I heard the album. But I, I like that they just let that part ride. And he, he gets to he gets to noodle around for a bit. It's got some great drumming, too. It does. Well, this song feels kind of like a decayed version of Yes Sir, No Sir to me, or at least the first part does. Like, <laughs> it, it sounds kind of like a drunken parody of it with like the same bu- 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 bum rhythm. Yeah. Uh, and Arthur like sort of kind of like drunkenly ambling around his Shangri-La, uh, just like echoing all of the Churchill uh, statements that he's heard on the radio. Like it's, this song Maybe is full, like the song is full of Churchill quotes. Uh, my favorite part is the double Dutch chant that ends the song. Oh, yeah. All right, let's move on to another one that I really, really like. This one is called She's Bought a Hat Like Princess Marina. She's bought a hat like Princess Marina's to wear at all her social affairs. She wears it when she's cleaning the windows. She wears it when she's scrubbing the stairs. But you will never see her at Ascot. She can't afford the time or the fare. But she's bought a hat like Princess Marina. So she don't care. The melody and style of She Bought a Hat Like Princess Marina derived from Ray Davis's fascination with the British music hall tradition. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, Britons visited establishments called music halls to eat, drink, and be entertained. The entertainers were singers, jugglers, comedians, sword swallowers, cannon swallowers, bomb swallowers, anything that the proprietors thought would hold their attention. (laughs) The songs sung in music halls were simple but catchy piano sing-alongs, and they had long awkward titles like, My Lori is Sorry Without You in the Passenger Seat, or We'll Put a Handful of Soot in the Kaiser's Chimney This Year. (laughs) Those aren't real songs, or at least any that history has recorded. But the melody and rhythm of She Bought a Hat Like Princess Marina, to say nothing of its mouthful of a title, would be perfect for a music hall. You can picture swinging around a mug of ale and singing along. 
Like many of the songs on Arthur, the primary melodic instrument here is a harpsichord played by Ray, and it's lovely and delicate. But the MVP is drummer Mick Avery, who keeps the whole thing swinging and whose drum break towards the end of the song is absolutely epic. But she hasn't any food in the larder Knows anybody else in the street But to look at her you'd think she was wealthy Cause she smiles just like a real lady She Bought a Hat Like Princess Marina is not a happy song so much as a social protest and a devastating one. The song's working class protagonists have nothing, and everybody they know has nothing, but by buying one piece of clothing that could pass as fancy, they feel a little bit better about themselves, even if it hasn't put any food in their larder. Specifically, the lady in the song wants to look like Princess Marina, a Greek-born princess who became part of Britain's royal family when she married the king's brother in 1934. The man in the song wants to look like Anthony Eden, three-time foreign secretary and prime minister between 1955 and 1957, and presumably a natty dresser. The lady wears her fancy hat to all her social affairs, meaning when she's cleaning the window and when she's scrubbing the stairs. Ray writes and sings with maximum empathy for his subjects. It's the same empathy that makes the best songs on this album as great as they are, and this is certainly one of the greats. The picture painted is one of resilience and cheer during the worst times, and Britain was having a bad time. After World War II, the empire was bankrupt, and nobody on the islands had much of anything. Well, almost nobody. Princess Marina had a little. Anthony Eden was doing all right. And to Ray Davis, that level of inequality was grossly unfair. A stiff upper lip is all fine and good, but maybe this man and woman shouldn't have to keep calm and carry on through so many unnecessary indignities, especially when there's enough out there to at least lighten everyone's load a little bit. That they had to was a scandal back then, and it's still a scandal now. Well, this song reminds me of uh, Moving Out Anthony's Song by Billy Joel. <laughs> and he's trading in his Chevy for a Cadillac. Take me there, Rich. Uh, which, in contrast to what our sometimes guest host Libby Cudmore might tell you, is a wonderful song. Uh, and the song <laughs> is about, it, well, it's, it's specifically about like working class families in New York City who go into debt and spend above their means uh, to have the outward appearance of opulence. Like, you know, trading in a Chevy for a Cadillac. Ac, 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 ac. <laughs> and that's what this song is about, but except in the British context, like post war, the austerity years. Just in case you thought that these themes are, you know, British themes only, once again. Yeah. <laughs> Mike. <laughs> the Kinks forays into British music hall are usually not my favorites. I'm, I'm <laughs> thinking of songs like uh, Wonder Boy or uh, Mr. Pleasant, <gasps> which I like. 
I like it, just but with a, a certain degree of oh come on. Sure. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I do I do like that song, but but this song has this, has this extra dimension to it. It's it's this this really poignant character sketch of these people who are never going to be what they want to be, but at least they've got the hat, and that makes yeah. it okay. It's but she's like, got a new hat. Yes, Brett, you beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it it's that uh, extra dimension uh, that I think is lacking from a song like The Dukes of Stratosphere's You're a Good Man, Albert Brown. Ooh. Well, you're a good man, Albert Brown, and you was wounded in the war. And now you shot some people down. You're still a good man, Albert Brown. Curse you, Red Barrel. <laughs> Curse you, Red Barrel, which is a song I just don't like very much. And I, I, I think if XTC had a flaw, it's that they were clever, but didn't always feel all that much for the people they were singing about as much as I like XTC. But yeah, I think this is, this is a, an interesting combination of, of a, a, a really sort of, sort of touching portrayal of these people's lives. And also this incredibly goofy vaudeville type song with kazoos and everything. <laughs> it's a, a very unusual song. It's, it's it's something the Kinks never really did before or since. Mike, I really like that because I love your good man Albert Brown by oh. the Dukes of Stratosphere. But your point absolutely stands. I mean, it's paper thin compared to this song, and and it has none of that empathy for for the characters. It doesn't really say anything. So I think you're just, right about just it. Just that you married that nurse, and her name was Else. Yeah. What about moving out Anthony's song though, Ben? Oh, that's a really fun song. I like it. Agreed. <laughs> okay, so back to this one. Um, I really, really love this one. And you guys have covered a lot of the musical reasons uh, to enjoy it. I want to touch on a few other things with it. So for starters, this one has my absolute favorite line on the album. He's bought a hat like Anthony Eden's because it makes him feel like a lord. But he can't afford a Rolls or a Bentley. He has to buy a second-hand Ford. In addition to the more obvious commentary about how people have such a hard time confronting that they are not, in fact, just temporarily embarrassed millionaires, hmm. and that they are much closer to a life of abject poverty than becoming rich, I also feel like Ray creates a useful metaphor regarding Britain's initial unwillingness to acknowledge its place in the post-war hierarchy of the world's nations. Ooh. For centuries, Great Britain had been one of the very most important nations in the world. And among other things, this had been reflected in Germany's early emphasis on trying to knock them out of the war early. As the conferences at Tehran, Yalta, and Potsdam ultimately made clear, though, in the post-war world, the nations that would matter most were the United States and the Soviet Union. Britain could continue to posture and preen and dress itself in fancy clothes, but it was now a second-hand Ford. Ooh. <laughs> a Ford Cortina. Did not yeah. think of that, and that's great. What I like about that line, too, is they, they, they punctuate it with, with the, you know, the, the silly little sound effects that are, that are all throughout the song. But, the, yeah, the, 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 <laughs> the, the rolls in the Bentley get this very nice uh, regal sounding car horn honk. And then the second hand Ford is this very sad sound. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's move on uh, to, uh, to another one. This one's called Yun and Innocent Days. I've been- 
This is a small song and sometimes written off, but I've always found it exquisitely beautiful. It's crafted around a delicate harpsichord line and graced with sensitive vocals and full harmonies in a minor key from Ray and Dave. It sounds Baroque to me, though I don't know for sure, and I would welcome John correcting me there. It is. Okay, thank you. I said I wanted you to correct me. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. It slips into being maudlin and melancholy and even dreary, but somehow in the best way because it's so aching and beautiful. This is the Ray Davis who, at his peak, was in the same sandbox as Brian Wilson. It's such a wonderful melody, the kind I think the world stopped writing after the 1960s, though I should note that I haven't been paying attention, and it's easier to make a pat statement like that than actually examine the music of the last 50 years. Then again, Ray would probably approve of my single-minded nostalgia and generational warfare. He knows that the past was always better. In fact, that's what the song is about. Ostensibly, Ray is speaking as Arthur, reaching the end of his life and wanting to mentally escape to a rosier past when everything seemed possible. But when you hear a couplet like, I wish my eyes could only see everything exactly as it used to be, that might as well be tattooed on Ray Davis's face. In fact, I yeah. think it is. I can't check Google Images right now while we're recording, but I'm pretty sure it is. He had that done when he launched his new career as a SoundCloud rapper. <laughs> I thought that was a strange turn for him. I love this song because the rest of the album is a bunch of character sketches for the most part. But this song is basically Ray and Dave singing directly from the heart and just kind of subbing it in for Arthur's. Like, like I adore this album, but the rest of it keeps you at kind of a narrative distance. But I find... This song really moving, just coming directly from Ray and Dave, which is a nice like contrast. Yeah. Mike? Uh, I think it's a lovely song. It's it's one that always, I never disliked it, but always kind of passed me by. It was just sort of, eh, it's it's the slow song, yawn. <laughs> uh, but it's it's absolutely, it's, it's a gorgeous little song. Uh, I don't have much to say about it other than that. It's got that really nice arrangement with, you know, the harpsichords back very nicely put together like everything else on the album. If I would change one thing about it, I think I would cut out that outro and just let it end with that big chord. I'm kind of done with it by the time it starts fading out. <laughs> so I I feel a little bad, but I'm still kind of on the slow song yawn. Camp, <laughs> even though it's not exactly for that reason. I think it's a little boring, even if I also think it's pretty. I, I guess I just don't really look for atmospheric beauty from the kinks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And while I sometimes love the way the band uses harpsichord, here what it reminds me of is the way that one would use a harpsichord as part of the basso continuo of a recitative section in a Baroque opera. Mm. Um, honestly, I'd probably like this song more if it was just an acoustic ballad. In this case, I feel like the 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 harpsichord is is one accoutrement too far. Mm. I can completely understand why someone would love this. To be clear, but for me, like some, not everything can be in the top third of the album. Right? Yeah, it's it's not in the top third for me or anything like that. But uh, is that your mathematician's opinion, John? I, I can't help it. Everything <laughs> is phrased that way. <laughs> But I, I agree that it is kind of boring, but I think it's boring in kind of a nice way. I think it's one of those songs. <laughs> no, and, and there's there's room in the world for those. Yeah. Okay. So moving on, I was going to say something clever about this next track, but it turns out that I have nothing to say. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. How are those noisy neighbors next? 
This is a great song. Uh, it, it does. It doesn't seem like it'd be one of the best on the album, but it's one of my favorites. Uh, in nothing to say, Arthur is visited by his son Derek, who sounds kind of like an ungrateful little shit, actually. Derek feels obligated to spend time with Arthur, but he doesn't enjoy it. He asks his dad some perfunctory questions about his old people things, like his aches and pains, his trade union, his life insurance. He thinks his dad is excited to talk about life insurance. Is there an age where that happens? <laughs> it's natural that the son would be bored by his dad's life, but I wish he had enough self-knowledge to realize that eventually that'll be him. Eventually he'll have aches and pains. Eventually he'll be hosting life insurance parties where he and his geriatric friends pass around and ogle each other's policies. Ooh, is that a 1952 whole life? That was a good year for those. Anyway... The son should have some understanding here, maybe even some empathy. Yes, we all think our parents could live more exciting lives and that they jettison many of their ideals sometime after college. And there's some truth there. But if we live long enough, we eventually understand much more clearly why they made the decisions they did. Top 10 reasons being that they were tired. Number 11 being that we were hella annoying to deal with. On another level, nothing to say is about a deteriorating relationship, or maybe one that was never great to begin with. Maybe there isn't just a generation gap. Maybe Arthur could have been a better father. It's possible. As the omniscient songwriter, Ray is empathetic, never judging either side, just presenting the situation as it happens. There's even a touching imagery where the son describes better times with his father. Remember walking with you by my side. You were my papa. I was your pride. This isn't about bad people. It's about people that time has slowly torn apart despite their best intentions. I mean, at least he's still visiting his dad. I haven't mentioned that this is a killer rock song. Mm -hmm. I always thought it sounded like The Who. It's not musically profound, but it's built around a catchy, pounding piano line. And Dave shines particularly on the high vocals on the chorus. Ray does slip into the Muppet voice again, or I really like how John has characterized that as the uh, the jingoism voice. Uh, it, that's not my favorite thing, but it's still a great song. One final note, the liner notes mention that Arthur had a second son, Eddie, who died in Korea. Presumably, he did more than that with his life, but that's all we're told about him. It seems like that might have been a significant event in Arthur's life, maybe even writing a song or at least a brief musical interlude, uh, something you would have found in the Who's Tommy. Mr. Morgan, we regret to inform you that your son has gone missing in Incheon. We will keep you appraised of any further developments. But no, Eddie just gets a blurb. Sorry, Eddie. I really like this one. <laughs> and not just because of the great piano part and the fantastic horn parts. Not only did Arthur's life stall out in terms of economic status and overall achievement, but as he reached middle age and beyond, he found that he didn't even have meaningful family connections to bring some sweetness to an otherwise bitter existence. In terms of the broader concept related to the decline of the British Empire, I have long seen this track as obliquely referring to Britain's colonies declaring independence one by one in the aftermath of World War II. Wow. Huh. Blew India my mind. in 1947, Israel and Palestine in 1948, various other nations all over the world through this album and beyond. Just as Arthur's children would continue to call, 
out of a sense of obligation despite feeling no real connection to their parent, many nations that had once been part of the British Empire would continue to have British royalty on their money as a token remembrance of what had been, but would otherwise seek to establish their own separate identities going forward. As the song says in the one moment of clarity, when Ray drops the voice of jingoism, those happy days we spent together, we thought our world would never change. How the days go by, and things will never be the same. Now, see, I, this was one I never liked all that much. Uh, <laughs> but now, I mean, now that, you know, hearing what you guys have said about it, I'm going to have to listen to it a little differently. I've, I've always sort of heard it as the song that's on every concept album, which is the, the song that exists primarily to further the plot. Uh, it's, uh, it's sort of like, uh, the light dies down on Broadway from, uh, Genesis's, uh, the land, which is awesome. <laughs> well, I, it's recycled bits of music from earlier on the album. So it's awesome music. Yes. Well, yes, but it doesn't add anything mm. and it, it, you know, it, it's necessary. It needs to be there, but musically it's not given me anything I haven't heard. And this song has the third use of that little bump, 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 bump motif that yeah. keeps popping up on the album oh. and i'm not sure if that was an intentional motif or I think it is or if ray was just kind of falling into a, a rut i would like to think it's an intentional motif that's exactly what i was gonna say yeah oh what are the other two it's it's in yes sir no sir and mr churchill says oh yeah 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 <laughs> good catch you have, you have anything else mike just that I'm, I'm going to have to to reappraise how I think of this song, because the joke I was going to make is, well, gee, it was sure nice of Ray Davis to name the song after what I have to say about it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Mike, because the song feels like son of return of the hook from yes, sir, no, sir. Like, yeah. bah, bah, bah. <laughs> it's like the leitmotif of subservience on this <laughs> album. <laughs> uh, yeah, except like this time it's the only hook in the entire song because Arthur is old and completely out of ideas he's walking dead by this point uh, and, and then in the bridge you get like a nice little visit from the ghost of Arthur Future showing him his grave and waiting like this is this is such a <laughs> lovely little depressing music hall song I love it that took quite a journey <laughs> <laughs> all right you thought we had nothing to say yeah all right let's move on to the final track this is the title track it is called arthur if only life were easy it could be such fun title track, the final track, brings absolution for Arthur. In a big, riffy sing-along, the kinks profess their forgiveness and love for Arthur, despite his flaws, 
Flaws like working hard, raising kids who felt secure and empowered enough to move to the other side of the world, paying his taxes and not wanting to get frostbite in uncomfortable places while going to the bathroom outside, and not wanting that for his kids either. Yeah, there's one of history's great villains there. Philosophy aside, this is a killer rock and roll track. Dave kicks it off with an extended lead guitar riff, then the whole band falls in, rocking and swinging at the same time and plowing ahead irresistibly. The guitar tone is great, round and chewy. The entire song is big and smiley and happy and loving. On such a serious album, it's about as fun as a rock song can get, and I could listen to it over and over again and never get tired of it. It wasn't a hit, but it's peak kinks. I wish it was a staple of classic rock radio, not just to knock a foreigner song off the playlist, though that would certainly be a benefit. Um, (laughs) By the end of the song, with the Davis brothers singing, Ooh, we love you and want to help you. Somebody loves you, don't you know it? The love and forgiveness are palpable. I'd argue that Arthur doesn't truly need all of it, but other people surely do, and I hope they're listening. How is your life and your Shangri-La and your long lost land of hallelujah and your hope and glory has passed you by? Can't you see what the world is doing to you? And now we see your children sailing off in the setting sun to a new horizon where there's plenty for everyone. Arthur, could be that the world was wrong. Don't you know it? Don't you know it? Arthur... Could be you were right all along. Don't you know it? I hope you know it. Now we know and we sympathize. We'd like to help you and understand you. Don't you know it? Don't you know it? Somebody loves you. Don't you know it? Don't you know it? Don't you know it? With an incredible stretch of verse and chorus lyrics, Ray manages to unify the two halves of the album's concept. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's all the more incredible is that the music may be much more impressive than the words. This is an absolute masterclass of guitar playing from Dave. If one felt so inclined, they could completely ignore Ray's vocals and focus solely on Dave without losing any sense of the song. Mm. Because the way that he weaves melody and harmony into his various guitar parts while providing some of his best supporting vocals is breathtaking and he sings right at the beginning too uh, I, I like oh, when yeah. dave gets vocals that's his own really the only instance on the album yeah it is a stunning conclusion to a stunning album well this feels like the depressing dance party at the end of the album to me honestly uh and dare i say it closing credits music uh, in fact it <laughs> literally might have served that purpose in the tv play uh, but i don't really have anything to add to what you two have said already this is just just a nice way to close things Mike? This song gets me right in what the kids call the feels. (laughs) I mean, just the empathy that Ray has been showing for Arthur during this album just spills over on this song. You really feel, you know, he he really feels for poor Arthur. Ray Davis has always been kind of an old coot himself. 
He's always even at 24, he was a curmudgeon at heart. So so he gets it. You know, he's he's a 20th century man who doesn't want to be there. Yeah. And so I think there's there's a level of understanding that you weren't necessarily going to get from a lot of rock stars yeah. toward a character like Arthur. And you really feel it during that during that conclusion when it's it's building up and it reaches almost like gospel levels of enthusiasm. Yeah. And the the mix of this very optimistic sounding music with this portrayal of where Arthur has ended up as this sad, lonely old man. It's just, it really gets me every time. And uh, one more note about that. Uh, right right when we finished the uh, the episode we did on Pink Floyd's metal, and we started preparing, you know, the, the very first stages of preparing for this episode, John mentioned that this is probably an album that won't sync quite as well with Fantasia. But immediately what came to mind was uh, in the the Rite of Spring sequence, all the the dinosaurs marching to their deaths, synced up with, Arthur, the world's gone and passed you by, don't you know it, don't you know it. And have we mentioned the uh, the connection to the Arthurian legend at all in the title? No, oh, no. no. Yeah, because it's one of those things that's like so obvious that we didn't even mention it. But right. yeah, that's that's another thing right there. Yeah, it's not, it's not an arbitrarily chosen name. I didn't mm-hmm. think of that. And Mike, the, the gospel connection. I mean, now that you say it, it's so glaringly obvious that like this this turns into a gospel song. And I didn't catch it until you said that. So that's yeah, I, I almost see like a church choir at the end telling Arthur they love him. Yeah. All right, I think we're done with Arthur or the decline and fall of the British Empire. So, Ben, what are your closing thoughts? As I re-listened to Arthur for this episode, two main strengths kept popping up, ambition and empathy. It also takes a lot of talent to make an album like this, and the Kinks definitely had a lot of that. But it takes ambition to write a song cycle about 60-plus years in the life of a country and about two world wars, which is two more world wars than you usually get from a typical rock album. Ambition doesn't automatically result in great work, but I always appreciate the desire to be interesting, to go in directions almost nobody wants to go in, like a song about a queen who had already been dead for 68 years at that point. Secondly, it requires so much empathy to get into the heads of people who suffered through things that you never had to suffer through, or who simply lived different lives than you have, And there's so much of that throughout Arthur. And I I like what Mike said about how he's about how Ray is a curmudgeon or or even an old soul and how he was able to do that where a lot of songwriters couldn't. Ray slips up a few times where he gets into unnecessary judgment of his title character. But there are enough stunning moments of empathy throughout the album to more than make up for it. Uh, To follow up with the Kinks, the Kinks had a huge hit the next year with Lola, uh, which has been referenced a few times. It's the catchy tale of a night spent with a cross-dresser. Or was she? Lola was probably the last kink song to permeate the greater consciousness, but they were successful throughout the 70s, releasing a series of albums that, as, as has been discussed here, continue to divide fans regarding their quality. I haven't heard any of them, so I can't say. The Kinks lasted as a creative concern all the way up to 1997, when the desire of the Davis brothers to not be in the same room as each other became stronger than their desire to make money. Ray and Dave have both released solo albums in the subsequent decades to varying levels of interest. Fans understandably clamor for a reunion, and allegedly they're working on a new album together, but we've been hearing about it for a few years now, so who knows? 
in fairness, that's a lot to ask of two guys who are now older than Arthur ever was and guys who left it all on the stage for us for so many years. I find this album just astonishing, Hmm. Uh, both as an individual album unto itself and as as the peak of the King's career. Uh, As an album unto itself, it's almost not even worth mentioning, but... You know, this is a concept album, but a big difference between this and other concept albums is that most concept albums either involve totally fantastical, otherworldly stories that don't actually relate to everyday life, or they're about bizarre, interesting things happening to people that changes them in some uh, majorly spiritual way. Whereas Arthur really leans into the notion that most people let life happen to them. And for many people, the act of letting life happen to them means that almost nothing happens to them. And it's and it's a very unsettling thought, but it's something that just needs to be considered from time to time. And then in the in the context of their career as a whole, one thing that really fascinates me about it is is how much it differs from what had immediately come before. I mean Ray's skills as a melody writer and as a lyricist had been amply manifested in the previous uh, three albums in particular, but this was a major stylistic left turn for them. And there was no guarantee that this was going to work with them throwing away the the really charming soft Britpop approach that they had, had gone all in on on the last few albums. And going for something so guitar heavy. I mean, there was a chance that this wouldn't work and it works. It works astonishingly. And I, I'm just flabbergasted by this album. It, and again, outside of this, you know, five, six year window, there's a lot of the kinks that I don't, that I have reservations on, but that middle period is so great. And this for me is the crowning jewel of that period for them. Yeah, up at the top of the episode, John mentioned something about being more of a fan of uh, of a certain period of the Kinks rather than the Kinks as a whole. And I think if you look at their entire discography and you give yeah. every album equal weight, you could see them as sort of this pretty mediocre band who had a few years of really good luck. But if you if you judge them by what they were at their best, if you judge them by by albums like this. They were one of the greats. All right. So, Ben, somebody listens to this album. They decide that it's great. They want to hear more kinks. Where should they go for more kinks? So, I mean, as I said in the beginning, I'm not an expert there. And I especially appreciated the the context you just provided in terms of how this album and this era fits in with their overall career. Uh, there are a lot of great kink songs out there. And even in their mediocre years, which I agree with Mike, a lot of the songs can can be not that great. They put out some incredible singles. Uh, I'm going to go with one of my favorite songs. It's the title track to their 1968 album, The Kinks Are the Village Green Preservation Society. It's either the apex of Ray Davies' obsession with the past or maybe even a winking self-parody. He positions the kinks as a society dedicated to preserving everything old and thus wonderful. Donald Duck, Strawberry Jam, Custard Pie, Virginity, and above all, the Village Green, the town park that represented England's bucolic past and that was threatened by a future filled with smog and concrete. 
To that end, their society also exists to condemn skyscrapers and drab office blocks. Whether it's real or a goof or half of one and half of the other, it's hilarious and catchy. Check it out. We are the Village Green Preservation Society. God save the old duck for the bill and variety. We are the Desperate and Appreciation Society. God save strawberry jam and all the different varieties. Preserving the old ways from being abused. Protecting the new ways for me and for you. All right, Mike, what about you? I am going to recommend the album Muswell Hillbillies, which yeah. I don't I don't think gets mentioned enough. It gets pegged as like their country album, and it, it mm. sort of is, but that's kind of a stretch. It's just it's very American rootsy sounding. Yes. Um in in a lot of different ways. It's a very diverse album uh within that within those parameters. But it's it's neat because it's this very uh, American sounding album about some very, very British things. I like that combination. I think it works really well. My favorite on there is uh, a song I alluded to earlier, which is 20th Century Man. Well, for the last few days, I've been revisiting the album Lola versus Power Man and the Money Ground Part One, which or is it Volume One? I can't remember. I think it's Part no, One. It's Part One. <laughs> part One. Yeah, whatever. It's all the album. The album title's too long and ridiculous, but <laughs> it's just kind of just a bunch of solid songs as opposed to the conceptual masterworks of Village Green or Arthur. But uh, the Kinks were on such a hot streak at this point as opposed to later, uh, that it betters a lot of lesser bands' best albums, in my opinion. And and Wes Anderson must really love it, too, because he put three songs from it in the movie The Darjeeling Limited. Uh, in particular, they're Strangers, Power Man, and they're beautiful This Time Tomorrow. For me, uh, aside from the uh, obvious uh, recommendation of the Kings or the Village Green Preservation Society, I'm going to uh, mention two compilations. Uh, the first has been uh, mentioned a couple times already, the Kink Chronicles. Uh, this was a, a compilation that was actually put together by a superfan, uh, a, a rock journalist by the name of John Mendelssohn. And he made the choices uh, not just of... Uh, which songs to include, but whether to include the stereo or the mono versions in each case. And he put a lot of thought into it. It's a really, really great introduction. Uh, one song that's in there that I wanted to go out of my way to mention as one that I really love is a is a non-album single called Big Black Smoke. Hmm. I mentioned earlier that the compilation that I had put together of three CDs where I couldn't repeat uh, an artist. The one song that I had actually considered putting on instead of Shangri-La was actually Big Black Smoke, uh, just to be clever. I ultimately <laughs> went with Shangri-La, but I gave it a lot of thought. She was sick and tired of country life. I live a country home. I live a country home. Made her blood run home. 
A second compilation I want to mention is a good way to get introduced to their early period. And unfortunately, this compilation is out of print. It's from the late 80s. It's called Kink Size Slash Kinkdom. It, it takes uh, tracks from a couple of American album, American releases that they had had uh, early in the 60s, extracts some of those, uh, brings in some uh, non-album singles and, and sequences it all really well. The first quarter of it uh, starts off a little bit slow, but by the time you get into the, into the middle, you have... Uh, you have things like See My Friends and Dedicated Follower of Fashion, culminating with I'm Not Like Everybody Else. So it's a great uh, tour of their early period. At the very least, uh, it's worth hunting down the individual tracks uh, online. They're, I think they're found now as bonus tracks uh, for their first three albums, which are you can find pretty easily. Speaking of that, just just, just a brief note: if if you if you go out and and buy Arthur, uh, make sure you get one with bonus tracks on it because there are some yes. great non-album singles from yeah. the time, like uh, Plastic Man and King Kong and uh, Mindless Child of Motherhood. Just oh yeah, well, a thing I forgot to mention is that there's like half a dozen really just ace Dave Davies songs in the bonus tracks that just couldn't conceptually fit. Right. Uh, that you can yeah, always make you can incredible. always make a great alternate album just from the discards because that's just what the Kinks did. Their albums wouldn't always be impeccable, but somehow their B sides destroyed everyone else's B sides. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we're done. Yeah. Yeah. Next album, our friend Dave Weigel is stuck inside just like the rest of us. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> <laughs> so. Rich has roped him into talking about the 1996 album Bilingual by the Pet Shop Boys. Yes, I have. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be fun. Roll credits. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Arthur and other albums by the Kinks at your local Village Green, or the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. We've also made you a Spotify playlist that you can find on our website, discordpod.com. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at discordpod on Twitter for news and updates, and on Instagram for pictures of our pets. Check out Ben's book, All the Days of His Life, listening to David Bowie, song by song, on Amazon. Visit my two-decade-old music review archive at johnmcferrinmusicreviews.org. Fair warning, I rate albums in hexadecimal, which is why Arthur gets an E. (laughs) Check out Mike's music at otherleadingbrand.bandcap.com. Editing is by Rich. And special thanks to Mike for his production and editing skills. Yeah, thanks, Mike. See you next album, and be ever wonderful. Don't you know it? <laughs> Don't you know it? <laughs>